Hey, we'll pray and then we'll get into, into this next portion of Galatians, hey? Lord, we want to thank you for our time together. We thank you that you bring us all together in your Son. We're united in this common grace that we have in Him. Um, you know, as Sandy has prayed, there's, there's nothing uh, bad that, that stops us from coming in and nothing good that allows us to walk in, but we're all united in this grace that we have in Jesus and we thank you that you brought us all together as a church, that we can encourage each other in this, that we can lift each other up in this and that we can continue to be nurtured in this as we look into, peer into your word and, and see what you have for us today. We pray your spirit would uh, move in here today, that you would confront us and convict us of where we stand before you and that you would move us into a relationship with you, perhaps maybe for the first time and perhaps maybe just to strengthen that. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. All right, you are going to find this next uh, statement hard to fathom, but once upon a time in a former life, I was once an elite athlete. Um, can't tell now, nothing but a shipwreck standing before you now, but um, used to play football for Yakandanda uh, back in the day, Tulanga District Football League. And while I was playing there, my, um, my teammates uh, uh, that, that we played with diagnosed me as suffering with a condition known as white line fever. Uh, it's a family illness. Uh, my brother has it. He's here today. He had a worse case of it than me, but um, there, there it is. After a particularly um, a robust game we had once against Kiwa, we didn't really get along with Kiwa all that well. Uh, there was a lot of intervention required by the people who kind of deal with the illness of white line fever, go by the street name of umpires. Um, after a, a weekend of that, we were at training on a Tuesday night and we were running through this competitive drill and uh, one of my teammates, new, newer guy to the side, kind of sidled up beside me and said, you Taylor boys, you don't really take too many backward steps out there on a football field. I thought you boys were supposed to be Christians. Before I could come up with some kind of incredible explanation uh, and response and sort of pour forth my airtight apologetic argument, uh, bringing the full weight of my theological reasoning to this moment, another one of the senior players, uh, Dale Smith at the time, heard the comment and spun around and said to this guy, if you'd known him at high school when I did, before he was a Christian, you would not ask that question. You would just be amazed that he's standing here at all. Dale didn't know it, but he was bearing witness. He was giving testimony to the work of of grace in someone's life as evidence of the truth of the gospel, as evidence that the gospel comes and does something in a person's life. I was ramping up for an intellectual conversation. You know, let me tell you, let me, let me slay you with my brilliance. But Dale, unwittingly, pointed out that transformation is evidence of a Christian faith. That the gospel is not merely something you know, not merely something you can talk about, but something that is experienced. And that experience changes us. It deals with us. The gospel is amazing grace 
that changes us. It works on us. On, on not merely what we know, but the gospel changes who we are. The gospel is for both the mind and the heart. Last week, we looked at uh, Paul as he launched into Galatians and his focus was on the content of the gospel. His focus was on the doctrine of the gospel. It has a process. It has content that can't be altered. And its origin is divine. It's not from Paul. It comes from Jesus. So it's, it can't be altered. You can't mess around with it. But this week, uh, Paul kind of shifts his focus, not totally, but shifts his focus uh, to its power, what it does. It's, it's transforming power by telling of his own experience of it, of, of what it did to him uh, when, when he received it. You know, we'd call this in church today our, our testimony, uh, our personal side to our faith. The, the stories that we tell as evidence of what God, his gospel has done in our lives. And I always think, I had to, I, I talked with Sandy about this, I, I didn't really get, get any further, but it's always difficult to, to tell your story sometimes because you run the risk of writing yourself in as the hero. You run the risk of, of, or of saying, look at what an amazing case I am, rather than look at what an amazing saviour I have. And then sometimes, conversely, we can think of our testimony, our story, uh, it, it, because it isn't littered with gory details of sex and drugs and rock and roll, that it's not powerful enough. But every story of deep heart transformation is powerful. No matter how dull or how uneventful we think our stories are, we, we at some point were in just as much need of grace as someone consumed with their own goodness or someone lost in their own badness. Every story is a miracle. Every story is a work of God. And what unifies all these stories is not the various details, not the darkness, not the, the goodness of them, but the unmerited grace of God in Jesus to transform all those stories into a common experience of grace. In this passage, Paul tells us about how he became a Christian, not to shine a, a light on himself, but to point out the amazing grace of the gospel. Paul begins this section by kind of backing over his initial uh, work that he did in the first 10 uh, verses, that the gospel of God's grace that he proclaims is not something that he came up with. It's not his. It belongs to Jesus. Paul didn't design it or come up with it through his own reflection or thinking, nor was he taught to him by you know the pillars, uh, John and James up there in Jerusalem, but Paul received it personally from the physically present, risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He got it from Jesus physically talking to him, physically um, teaching him. Not a vision, not an apparition. The risen Lord Jesus. If it poked him in the chest, he would have stood there. His gospel comes from divine revelation. It was the initiating grace of God to move toward Paul in this. This is a gospel that doesn't begin with Paul's thinking, with Paul's musings. It begins with God coming toward Paul in Jesus. 
This gospel is God's, not people's. And it's not though that Paul had no idea about the context or existence of this gospel. He had no doubt heard many times uh, the content and the context of this gospel. Most famously, he was there uh, at Stephen's speech where Stephen was stoned to death. Stephen's bearing witness to who Jesus is and he's murdered for it. And there's Saul, who becomes Paul, standing there giving his glad approval to this execution. You read about it in Acts 7. It's hard to imagine that someone being so fiercely militant as Paul against the gospel, towards the gospel about Jesus, is completely unaware of its content. But like Paul, or Paul like the rest of us, is to this point unmoved by its content. He's unmoved by the gospel until Jesus comes along and illuminates it. It causes us, causes Paul to perceive its beauty and his and our depravity. It happens in that moment. How many times do you hear stories of people sitting in church all their life, sermon after sermon, just unmoved? Or of people growing up in Christian homes, hearing the gospel, the good news about God's love in Jesus, but never having it actually disrupt their life, never having it actually shape their life, until one day they say something like, I've been in church my whole life. And I've never heard the gospel before until just today I heard the gospel. That's because that was the day that the grace that God had been pursuing them with over time, that God had initiated along the way, was illuminated in a moment. And they understood it. It was like a revelation. Never heard this before. Poor old pastor up the front of the church is going, six years. Paul's conversion of this is unique. In that saving grace, as I've said, was delivered personally by Jesus. Just my opinion. But trust me, if anyone finds themselves face to face with the physical risen Lord Jesus, you are dead. And you have passed on to the next life. For the rest of us, Jesus does his work through the Holy Spirit who takes the work of God over time, the hearing of his word, the the continuous uh, speaking of the gospel and illuminates our hearts with that truth of that gospel in a moment that we call repentance, in a moment that we call conversion. It's amazing grace because we didn't uh, dream it up. We didn't attract it. We don't deserve it. It's the will of God to, as John says in, in his letter, he says, to lavish this kind of love upon us and set us free from sin. It is God who does this, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18. It's God who does this initiating of grace, this saving through grace. And if if it's God who starts it, and if it's God who initiates it, it is God who holds it in place in your life. Can you see how that's freedom? Can you see how this grace leads to freedom? You don't have to make sure it sticks. 
That's why Paul says we're free. We're free from trying to gain approval. We're free from trying to earn approval. We're free from trying to dismiss approval from God. It's been given and it's yours. We're free from the works. We're free from works to to earn approval and we're free from works to try and avoid shame. In verses 13 to 14, Paul now just reaches back, if you like, into his own personal testimony of, of when he was Saul of Tarsus, when he was well known as a religious zealot, a terrorist type setup. For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism. He does this to demonstrate how impartial, how unprovoked the grace of God is. Paul uses his former way of life as a stark contrast with the way of life that he has now as something that's just humanly unexplainable but powerful evidence of the grace of God. It's not his efforts or his merit that God called him into this uh, life. Paul is the worst of both worlds, a real dangerous mix. He says in 1 Timothy 1, you know, I am the worst of sinners. He's a real dangerous mix of evil and righteousness. If he was doing now what he was doing back then, we would literally have this man on a terrorist watch list. Paul is a murderous persecutor of a religious minority. How I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it. In Acts 9, uh, Luke recalls the mindset of Saul as he sets about this, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul, Paul, is literally the bringer of death. So committed is he to this cause that he, that he records later on in Acts that he voted, he stood with those to kill and put to death these Christians. Paul was a man who was violently evil. And yet, Paul was a man who had dedicated his life and his education to maintaining and championing the traditions of his fathers. He was a man who maintained religious piety. Paul's a rising star. He's outstripping everyone in his generation at being zealous, at being full on for the moral righteousness that's in their religion. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my forefathers, of my fathers. You read about it again in Philippians 3, 5 and 6. Before his conversion, Paul had been a great religious rule keeper and he knew it. He knew that he was keeping of the rules and that no one could question his, his ethic, if you like, filled him with pride and a sense of authority that enabled him to do what he did, to be who he was. And as we look at Paul's own account of his life, as we look at these murderous actions, as we look at this self-righteousness, there is not a single signal, not a single hint that in any way he is showing signs of warming to Christianity. He is unmoved. He is advancing in the other direction. 
It seems as though the voice of the martyrs is lost on Paul. It seems as though the unflinching faith of the prisoners is just a red flag to a bull. Nothing in Paul said, here comes the greatest Christian to ever walk the earth. How did this self-righteous, rule-keeping, racist, religious terrorist become a champion of grace and equality? Of acceptance of races across all lines? Verse 15, But when he, God, who set me apart before I was born, before Paul had done anything good, before Paul had done anything bad, unmerited in either way, before, I, before he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. This is how it happened. Here's Paul's explanation of how this took place. This incredible change that people are seeing in this man might have surprised every single person in Rome but not God. God had set Paul apart before he was born. Paul's conversion is not a product of chance or circumstance or inclination. It is the planned pleasure of God. Not because Paul had potential. Not because God felt sorry for him. It was the unqualified, unmerited grace of God that called him by revelation of Jesus. Well, this word called here that we find here is an action done by God. It's not like when uh, you, me, whoever, you know, we might call out kids for tea and say, hey, come, come and have tea, tea's ready. And in 20 minutes later, we're like, we're still eating alone. Nothing happens. To a degree, when we, when we speak, when we ask for something to happen, our words don't actually carry any power to make that happen. But when God calls, there is power to achieve. It is a deed. That's what this word here in this particular sense means. God says, let there be light. And there's light. He doesn't have to run off to a lab and go and mix up some light and put it out into the universe. When Jesus says to the storm, be still, it's still. Still becomes its new reality. When Jesus says to Lazarus, come out, he doesn't have to go and wake him up and drag him out. There stands Lazarus. When God affects his call, it is reality. That becomes the new reality. Commentators have often mused that had Jesus not said Lazarus' name, if he just said to those graves, come out, every single dead person would have walked out. Paul is saying when God affects his call on us, it becomes our new reality, a new quality of life that you have not known before. You are born again, as Jesus says. The gospel is affected in our lives by the call, the active, intentional power of God's grace. And if you've got your Bibles there, highlight this phrase. It delighted God to reveal his son to Paul. It delighted him. He took pleasure in it. It wasn't begrudging. It wasn't a begrudging act. It wasn't out of pity, as we said. But it delights God 
to reveal, to make known the gospel about Jesus and what that does in a human heart. It delights God to do that. It delights God to see what becomes of a person when that transformation takes place. Why? Because it makes much of Jesus. It transfers someone into the family of God so that he can now act toward them with blessing rather than pending wrath. It delights God. This is not a static transaction. This is deeply relational. You you hear that? And as Paul notes in verse 24, it glorifies God. As people were looking at Paul and and the new way that he was, words sleeping about, hey, this dude's gone from killing people, beating the living suitcase out of them, to preaching about Jesus. And like, thank God. There has been a miracle, a spiritual intervention and something has changed. You, you feel this. It's physiological. It changes you. It doesn't just change your intellect. It changes who you are. Not merely what you do anymore, but, but why you do. Listen, you might not be able to pinpoint an exact moment that this began, that this took place. But it has dawned on you now. It's an um, undeniable reality that God has and is affecting change in your life that wasn't natural, that wasn't normal till now. Not merely because you've become to agree intellectually with a proposition, but because you now feel affirmed, you feel accepted, You have experienced the gospel. You haven't just captured it and known it intellectually. And something is dealing with you. Something is transforming you, work of the Spirit. You're not trying to keep a set of rules or gain approval. You have become a new reality that delights in the rules because you already accept it. We call this grace. Paul calls this grace. The, the gospel kind of gives us, we kind of look back. The gospel gives us a pair of spiritual spectacles, if you like. This is Calic trying to sum it up. Through which we can review our lives and see God preparing us, shaping us, even through our own failures and sins or the failures and sins of others. You think about what Joseph said, you know, you guys, you guys intended this, this, this stuff for harm, for bad, and God, who runs the show, used it for salvation, salvation of a whole nation through our own failures and sins, to become vessels of God's grace in the world. As we look back on our lives, I can see it all now. It's so amazing grace is the free, uh, impartial, unmerited call of God working powerfully on the mind and the heart to change our lives. Paul puts forward his testimony as evidence of this. If you hear, if the gospel you hear, sorry, the gospel you hear, the gospel you say you've heard, the gospel you say you live in your life by, doesn't operate in you like this. Doesn't work on you. Doesn't affect deep heart change. It's not the gospel. You're not a Christian. Salvation is by grace alone. 
not through moral or religious performance. Paul's been there. Paul's done that. And it was death. It kept him enslaved in death. Paul's sins were very deep. But his testimony tells us that the gospel is not an invitation to more religious activity. It calls us out of religion as a means of approval. It calls us out of irreligion as a declaration of self-sufficiency. The gospel is grace in Jesus Christ initiated into our hearts and lives. Have you felt it? Have you experienced it? Is that what holds you in place, the power of God, not your efforts? That's what Paul means by freedom. That's freedom. Keller points out in his book, no one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel, nor so bad that they can't uh, be can't receive the grace of the gospel. Paul was deeply religious but but needed the gospel. Paul was deeply flawed yet could be reached by the gospel. The amazing thing about grace is that it's impartial toward you and totally the will and work of God. C.S. Lewis marvels at this. He says, only God could thought of this. Only God could thought of salvation through grace. As Paul shares his testimony, we discover that the gospel is not just the power of God for a moment in time to change the heart, but is the ongoing power of God to transform, shape, sustain and hold a person's heart. Paul says God did this in order that I might preach him, that's Jesus, among the Gentiles. This is how you know you know the gospel. This is how you know the gospel is alive in you. You have a transformed a perspective and purpose. New direction in life, if you like. God revealed Jesus to Paul, not as an end to itself, but in order for Jesus to be revealed through Paul. Paul has become an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer to show what a life looked under God's grace now looks like. As a Jewish religious teacher, Paul would have held the line the Gentiles, a, 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 a pagan class of people equivalent to dogs. Paul would have held the line that you are made ritually clean through, through your own services and, and actions and keeping of the law. And those Gentiles don't do that. So the minute you come into contact with them, the minute you have fellowship with them, drink from the same cup, breathe the same air, you're unclean as well. What kind of grace transforms the racist religious terrorists so completely? Here lies the critical difference between mere religious moral person and a Christian. A Christian has more than an intellectual belief in Christ. They, they sense something personal is going on. A relationship is, transforms not just uh, how we think but who and why we are. What, what shapes how we act. It transforms how we move and see people. Paul uses verses 16 to 24 as a means to demonstrate primarily that his gospel is not a product of, 
of man, but a product of Jesus. Not the teaching of human agency, but, but the teaching of God in his life. He goes from Jerusalem to Arabia and then back into Damascus for three years. A brief stopover in Jerusalem for 15 days where he spent time with Peter before spending the next nine to ten years uh, in the regions of, of Syria and, and can't say that word, Cecilia. Thank you, Cilicia. Uh, I listened to you say it, Nick, and I thought, remember that, remember that, remember that. But I didn't pull it off. He's preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And all the time that this is going on over these years, HQ down in Jerusalem, the, 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 the hub of Christianity, they still haven't got out of Jerusalem yet. What are they doing? Are hearing whispers and reports about this Paul who once tried to persecute the faith but is now preaching it and they glorify God. You know what else this does? They look up. Yes, this gives us a record that Paul received his gospel by the teaching of Jesus, but it also tells us something else. Paul didn't magically become a super Christian the moment Jesus got hold of him. 14 years ago on a Damascus road. That didn't happen. Paul did not become perfect. The truth about Jesus was made known and he was born again, converted. A miracle in a moment of time. But the grip on his life of religious prejudice would still be there. The grip on his life of racism would still be there, of classism would still be there. Hate, fuel, rage would still be there. Life scripts don't go away overnight. These are the things that God is in our life promising to work on, that he is transforming. There are some things that go away instantly. I became a Christian. I stopped drinking without even thinking about it. Alcohol was an issue for me. It was an addictive issue. It was destroying my life and every relationship that I had. Didn't even have to think about that. Don't know why, that's just happened. Other things didn't. Short fuse, still working on it. Grace of God, you're all still here. Joke. <laughs> well, I said that. Oh, stayed in my script. God is destroying everything in Paul that he built himself on that he made much about himself on, that he prided himself in and he is replacing it with a relationship with him. Fruit of the Spirit. This takes time. It doesn't happen overnight because if it happened overnight, you wouldn't value it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't cherish it. You'd be like, oh God, just turn me into this super Christian. There'd be no relationship in that. There's no power of God to transform you. you know, you're working through it in that. 14 years Paul's out doing this stuff. Hey, if the information you know about Jesus hasn't transformed you, if it hasn't over time dealt with sin and replaced it with scripts of grace, something's not right. Something's not right. That's not the type of encounter that's from Jesus that's at a personal level not the type that's been set free from sin to grow in grace and receive God's pleasure. After 14 years, this deep heart transformation, 
from persecutor of Jesus to preacher about Jesus, Paul returns to Jerusalem uh, to set before the other apostles who are still stuck in Jerusalem the gospel that he's been preaching, the gospel that he has. Now, this is not a trip up there. He's not setting this gospel uh, before them to gain acceptance or accreditation of his gospel. Paul needs neither of those things. A person who says, you know, uh, as we saw last week, even if an angel or, or if we, if I turn up with a new version of the original gospel, let that person, uh, the, the phrase you've got in your Bible is be cursed, what that means is let that person rot in hell. A person who can say that is not concerned about the content of their gospel. They're pretty secure in it. A person who receives a revelation, that's why he goes to Jerusalem, he received a revelation to go, get up there from the risen Lord or from God, to go to Jerusalem, is not concerned about acceptance. He's, he's not why he's going. Neither is Paul worried that the apostles might have a different gospel to his. Paul sets his gospel before Jerusalem for unity's sake. Paul is concerned now to gain a consensus that there is a universal understanding, a universal demonstration, if you like, that salvation is by grace and not works. That people are made clean, that people are made right by a relationship with Jesus, not by religious duty or adding anything to the formula. Paul brings uh, Titus along. He's a Greek, he's a Gentile, he's a dog with him as a test case of sorts. Will they let him uh, come into fellowship? Would they shake his hand? Will they embrace him? Will they let him sit at the same table with them? Or will they still see him as unclean? Or will they see him as under the same grace as them, cleaned by Jesus? Nothing to fear here. a true brother in Christ. The fact that he has received Jesus by faith, will that be enough for them? The truth of the gospel can be preserved in this, can be enshrined in this unity. That's why Paul's going up there. He wants to make sure that everybody is on the same page, so to speak. When James and John, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, give Paul, Timothy and Titus the right hand of fellowship that is doctrinal acceptance and agreement that salvation uh, through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone is the core of Christianity. The church unites in fellowship around common agreements that God's blessing is through relationship with His Son. God does not judge on externalities. He doesn't judge on whether you've kept rituals, whether you washed yourself, religious practices and works, but he judges on internalities. Christianity is about who I am in Christ, not what I do for Jesus. Titus was the first test case of this doctrine that unites the church. You and I are made clean. We're made blameless before God because of Jesus. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Greek, Jew, Gentile, male, female. Talk about it later. Do you see that this is freedom? Do you see that this is grace? Freedom from a culture, a system that demands performance, moralistic behaviour as acceptance or criteria as the means of salvation. 
You must dress a certain way. You must not watch R-rated movies unless it's Passion of the Christ. You must be seen with the right people. Don't drink, don't smoke. A culture of separation and behaviour compliance, of being perceived as nice and proper. And all that does is just promote prejudice and intolerance rather than looking at people to see if the internal work of the Spirit is there working on their lives. Looking to see if the Spirit of God is transforming their hearts. Yeah, I'm jacked up and messed up, but I don't hold my salvation in that. I'm pinning my salvation on the grace of Jesus. And it might take 14 years to get from this messed up picture you see now to something worthy of him, but I'm on the road. That is fellowship. Paul's gospel is not a denial of the moral imperatives of the law, the Ten Commandments. Christians shouldn't steal, they shouldn't commit adultery, they shouldn't lie. But while not free from the moral law as a good way to live, Christians are free from it as a system of salvation. You get the difference? You're not free to go and live as you choose. You can't run out of this building and go and kill people, speed down the Nepean Highway. But you are free from it as a system to gain your salvation. That is given to you by faith in Jesus. Our freedom is in the security of knowing we are saved in Christ. Our obedience is an overflow of joy, of deep gratitude that he's done this, that we didn't have to do a thing. What kind of God moves towards us like this? This is the amazing grace of the gospel. It sets you free from the slavery of a system of salvation and establishes you in a relationship of deep heart transformation where God is doing both the surgery and the recovery work that places you in fellowship with those who are experiencing the same grace. Isn't that cool? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again this morning for your word. Uh, And now, as we just kind of let it sit on our hearts and as Paul comes up, um, we just pray that you'd be in this moment as we move to the band and that that you would be uh, working on the hearts and minds of people. And uh, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.